Did the War of the Worlds radio broadcast cause mass chaos throughout the United States? The internet says, well, let's let's just let's find out. Hey, hey welcome. It's the Internet Says It's True, where every week we learn something that sounds made up, but it's really true. Part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. Welcome. This is episode 155, and yesterday was National Radio Day. So we'll be replaying an episode that I had a lot of fun writing and producing. It was all about the War of the Worlds, which is a radio broadcast in 1938. Uh, this week, I'm appearing in San Antonio and then Philadelphia. It's the beginning of the college tour, so it's starting to be a really busy time for me. I'm hoping to get a, a few new episodes out to you, but in the meantime, I've found that a lot of people who have, you know, like recently discovered this show, they haven't necessarily gone back and listened to past episodes, so this is a good opportunity to revisit some of the stories that we've already done. And before we start that, I want to announce something that I'll be doing for the next few weeks it's going to be a patron drive. I'm planning on adding in some extra bonus episodes over the coming weeks as a special drive to uh, A, thank the Tizzeters who have become patrons and supporters, and B, drive some new patrons to the Patreon. So if you haven't already, you can take a minute to join at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. And when you do that, I'm going to mail you some stickers. I'm going to get you access to Joke Story Trick. That's my 65 episode web series. So if you want in on that, or if you just want to, you know, just support me, just support the show, please consider giving anywhere from $1 a month to $10. It's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Again, that's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Also, I wanted to send a special shout out to Zach D, who sent in a note. He said he operates trucks for a living in Australia, and he listens to the show on his drives. He also sent in a couple topics for the future. So thank you so much for that, Zach, and thanks for listening. I'll send a couple stickers in the mail down there to you in Australia. So this episode was first released on July 25th, 2022, just about a year ago. Hope you enjoy this look back. Hey, Michael, it's CJ down here in Texas. I was wondering if maybe you could look into the Orson Welles War of the Worlds. I've always heard that it caused like a nationwide panic. Uh, but lately I've been hearing some stuff that maybe that's not necessarily true. Uh, maybe you could look into it. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks, CJ. I've always assumed that this story was true, and I love this story because it's sort of a breaking down of the fourth wall of radio. It's an early version of what movies like The Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch Project did for film, blurring the line between drama and reality. And I like it because there's something just a little bit ethically ambiguous about it, and that really helps to immerse the viewer in the story. And if the goal of art is to elicit emotion, this is a really effective way of doing that. So let's travel all the way back to 1938. It was the evening of October 30th, 1938. Orson Welles had walked into the Columbia Broadcasting Building on Madison Avenue knowing it was going to be an interesting evening broadcast. He was scheduled to present the regular series Mercury Theater on the Air, a weekly hour-long broadcast. He'd been inspired by a radio play he acted in the year before called The Fall of the City, and that was a story about a conqueror that comes back from the dead to rule the city, but it was really an allegory on fascism. It made Orson Welles an overnight sensation in radio, and the style was something that was new. This new fad was taking hold that had been made popular by a radio program called The March of Time, the idea of telling a dramatized story as a live radio broadcast. 
Wells experimented with the realistic-sounding radio broadcast storytelling format a couple more times in the next year with an as-it-happens drama called Air Raid and a historical piece about Julius Caesar. But what he had planned for the Halloween special was something bigger, something special, and he knew it would be groundbreaking. He discussed the idea of adapting a piece of sci-fi for a radio broadcast with producers John Houseman and Paul Stewart. They decided on a 19th century piece of sci-fi set in England, H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. Howard Koch adapted the H.G. Wells work to a radio format for CBS by modernizing it. He took the setting from the original 19th century England to New Jersey in present day, choosing the tiny unincorporated community of Grover's Mill. The plot remained basically the same, aliens from Mars invading Earth. The dramatic piece began with a monologue similar to the novel. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. From then, the radio play took the form of an as-it-happens news radio program, even playing music and then interrupting that music with news bulletins, first reporting that scientists have noticed unusual gas explosions on the planet Mars, then getting more serious. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. The first two-thirds of the radio program went on like this, and to anyone who just tuned in, it would sound like a real news broadcast. There were weather reports and a supposed live broadcast of a musical performance from a local hotel, Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. In fact, it was Wells's intention to make these musical interludes last an uncomfortably long amount of time in order to add realism to the live broadcast style. A little bit after talking about the gas explosions on Mars, we hear about a strange meteorite landing. Now nearer home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. The broadcast was so realistic, we even go on to hear screams and a moment of dead air, something that was a huge no-no in the conventional rules of radio. And using our own conventional rules of podcasting, we need to take a quick break here to tell you about some of our supporters. If you love listening to this podcast every week and you want to show your support, that would mean a great deal to me. You can do that by becoming a Patreon member. We've got members at all levels, whether you want to pledge $1 a month or $10 a month. Just think about the value that you receive from this show. And if you like the histories and the stories that you learn about or the jokes that you hear, and if you think that they're worth it, consider signing up. For that, you get every episode ad-free and a week early, access to bonuses like the unedited videos of the guest appearances, and 20% off all merchandise. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. That's patreon.com slash Michael Kent. 
Hi, I'm Dan Skinner, host of Prognosis Ohio, a health and healthcare podcast that's a proud part of the WCBE podcast experience. Some people have told me that I should take the show national, focusing on the U.S., but as we head into 2022, I want to tell you that we're keeping the focus right here on Central Ohio and our community, just like WCBE itself. Check out Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts and listen to episodes at wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing balms, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to theinternetsaysitstrue.com slash deals for the link. Let's get back to our story. We take you now to Grover's Mills, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmot Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor. At least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. Eventually in the radio play, the Martians are attacking and the broadcast focuses on the military units that are trying and failing. And we hear those broadcasts from the different military radios. Then, it turns to a supposed reporter on the roof of a building in Manhattan, watching giant alien machines attack the city. The drama intensifies, and then we hear the reporter become desperate. Wait for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. Uh, a hundred yards away. It's, it's 50 feet. There are a few moments of silence, and then we get the very first indication since the program began that this isn't real. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Performance will continue after a brief intermission. 
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. There were only four instances throughout the entire broadcast to let listeners know it wasn't real. The opening, before and after the middle commercial break, and at the very end. The commercial break itself was delayed a few minutes later than usual to increase the realism of the piece. Later that night, three different times, disclaimers were read on the air to reiterate the piece was merely fiction. And the popular story about this broadcast, the reason anyone remembers it from the thousands of other radio plays in history, came about because of the many newspaper headlines that talked about it afterward. Headlines like, Radio Fake Scares Nation, and uh, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through U.S., and a lighted bulletin in Times Square reading, Orson Welles Causes Panic. The broadcast had started at 8 p.m. that night. By 8.32 p.m., the CBS executive Davidson Taylor was on the phone taking a frantic phone call. Producer John Hausman said Taylor returned to the studio looking white as a ghost. He had been ordered by the higher-ups at CBS to immediately interrupt the broadcast to announce that it was a dramatic work of fiction. Luckily for Wells and Hausman, there was a scheduled commercial break less than a minute away from that phone call anyway. That commercial break carried disclaimers about the program before and after, like you just heard. But as the show continued on, a few policemen entered the room outside the studio. Then a few more. CBS pages and executives stood in front of the police, begging them to just wait. The police wanted to barge into the studio and stop the broadcast immediately. They, of course, weren't allowed into the room. The program continued. The final third of the show was a more standard radio drama format without the realism of the news report break-ins and weather bulletins. We learn the rest of the story, that the aliens have now taken New York City and eventually have died of human pathogenic germs. The broadcast ended with Orson Welles once again telling the listeners that they've been listening to a radio play and that it was merely a holiday offering for Halloween. According to Hausman, the next few hours were crazy. Here's a quote from his 1980 memoir. Quote, The building was suddenly full of people and dark blue uniforms. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado while network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all scripts and records of the broadcast. End quote. They apparently fielded a call from a small town mayor who complained that his citizens were rioting in the streets. One of the reasons that is often given for the panic is that people were listening to another program on the radio then switched to the War of the Worlds after the opening disclaimer. Another reason for the panic that's cited is that radio broadcasts for weeks had been updating America on the growing war between Germany and Czechoslovakia. So people were already on edge. They were used to hearing important news bulletins interrupting their radio shows. The newspaper headlines followed and the rest became a lasting legacy. Most people today know the story about how this radio broadcast sent Americans into a panic. But there are more than a couple reasons to doubt that it actually caused any sort of widespread panic. Robert Bartholomew, a sociologist who is an expert on mass panic outbreaks, has said there's a growing consensus among sociologists that the extent of the panic was greatly exaggerated. First, there simply weren't enough people listening. One of the pieces of evidence of panic is this treasure trope of 2,000 letters mailed to CBS and Orson Welles complaining about the broadcast. But when they were scrutinized, only about 27% of those letters came from people who were actually listening. It was originally reported that 12 million, or one out of 12 homes, were listening to the War of the Worlds. 
but a survey was actually conducted that night during the broadcast. They had a sample size of only 5,000, but out of that 5,000, only 2% said they were listening to it. After all, it was up against the most popular show of the time, Edgar Bergen's Chase and Sanborn Hour Variety Show. Mercury Theater on the Air had horrible ratings. Another survey, which was conducted later at Princeton, estimated the real number listening was closer to 6 million. When those people were asked if they were, quote, frightened or disturbed by the show, 1.2 million said they were. But there's sort of an inherent problem with that question. In that era, radio had the power to move people. It had the ability to shock, to frighten and disturb. It would be like asking you about the scariest movie you've ever seen and ask if it frightened or disturbed you. So this brings us to what is most likely the reason for the overblowing of panic. Newspapers. Newspapers whose existence was threatened by social media, and before that was threatened by online news, and before that was threatened by television news. Newspapers were threatened by radio. It was in their best interest to get the public to have a healthy distrust of what they heard on the radio. So these many newspaper stories talking about the mass chaos and public panic caused by the broadcast could have had a motive, whether conscious or unconscious, of telling the public, look at this new medium and take it with a grain of salt because unlike a trusty newspaper, the radio can mislead the public. Take the New York Times, for instance, who said, quote, Radio is new, but it has adult responsibilities. It has not mastered itself or the material it uses. So while the cultural lore about the War of the Worlds is one of groundbreaking realism and a story about not trusting everything you hear, the truth is probably a story that gives much more credit to the public at large. And proving that nothing is new under the sun and proving history always repeats itself, the same thing happens today on social media. Celebrity death hoaxes are a weekly occurrence on Twitter. Fake news gets spread on Facebook by people who don't take the time to find out whether or not it's a true story. And certain news stations don't cover major news events because of their own political interests. So in that way, what Orson Welles was doing really was groundbreaking. It was one of the first instances of nationwide trolling. We've now come to the part of the podcast where I call a friend, and today we're calling Jethro and Matt from the Drunkard's Walk podcast. These guys have a really fun concept for a podcast, and I really enjoy listening to it. I want to let them describe it for you. The Drunkard's Walk podcast. Now, it's so good to have Jethro and Matt back. How would you describe your podcast? Because I feel like I was going to get it wrong. So walk us through, pardon the pun, walk us through like what... A, what a drunkard's walk is, because that's a saying that I didn't know. Um, and B, what the Drunkard's Walk podcast is doing. Well, Jethro, I'm going to let you uh, explain what a drunkard's walk is as as a term, because I that's what I always get wrong. Okay, uh, so a drunkard's walk is also called a random walk. And it's the idea that if two people leave from a common point of origin and then randomly turn at intersections they'll eventually run into each other, which is the same as a single uh, person randomly turning will eventually end up at their point of origin. So it's a it's a mathematical idea um, that we have uh, completely ripped off and not really uh, applied any mathematical context to. But we've taken that idea and we've thrown it into Wikipedia. And Matt, I'm going to let you take it from there. 
Oh gosh, thank you, Jethro. Uh, this is this is very unlike us, uh, yielding the floor to each other. But um, <laughs> we uh, essentially get uh, we start at a particular topic. Um, we started the very beginning of the podcast at Random Walk or Drunkard's Walk, and uh, we get a topic from a listener, and we journey off through Wikipedia, only using the links on the pages to get from that starting topic to whatever that ending topic may be, and they're all random we say they're random because we don't know what they're going to be and they're they're being generated by our users um who who don't know where we're starting uh so they just give us something that is either on their mind or something they find interesting uh we've we've definitely gotten uh things that i have never heard of before uh which is definitely my favorite types of uh types of walks yeah i i have really enjoyed it because this podcast is also sort of a random trivia podcast and so you know while my topics are always sort of i since it needs to carry an episode, they sort of have to have a beginning, middle and end. You know, they have to be yours or sometimes it's just like a phrase uh, or, or uh, you know, some sort of scientific thing that, uh, yeah. that I've never heard of. And all of a sudden, you know, now we're looking into it. We're learning how it goes from one thing to another. And then it comes back around to the original thing somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's exactly it. In fact, somebody compared it to um the show from the i think it was the early 80s or 70s connections um if you've ever seen that not show, familiar uh i'm trying to remember the host's name i think it's james burke okay i believe is his name but um it was a show it was a, a i want to say bbc show that was shown on pbs here and they essentially just went through like it, it would just start on something and then it would be like and this is how it's connected all the way through all these other things too you know they'd start on like telephone and they would end up on like rice pudding or something like that like it was it was this incredible connection that which we hadn't thought about but i was like oh that's that's a that's that's a pretty good comparison if you've ever heard of it which of course most people haven't so i'm sure also it gets you know the 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 idea when you talk about the drunkard's walk thing the the seven degrees of kevin bacon gets brought up occasionally there's someone on tiktok who does a really interesting version of this where I don't remember exactly how it works, but they will just give the person a Facebook picture or a or a, a Facebook profile or something of two of of a person, and then there's a completely different random person. And this guy connects these two strangers that have never met and don't know each other and don't even know that they're being involved in this experiment. And he finds a way to connect these people. He's like, "Well, this person went to this high school." And this other person went to this high school and their teacher was this person who used to work at this high school. And here's that football team. And this football team has a mother who, you know, was on the whatever. And it's 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 absolutely crazy. I love stuff like that. It's just like the most rabbit holeish rabbit hole you've ever heard of. Um, mm. And it's it's nothing but web sleuthing, you know, and, and I dig it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it also goes to show just how interconnected the world is. I mean, that's all based on a Stanley Milgram experiment. Where he just dropped letters, uh, he he dropped he sent letters to random people and said, "Hey, can you find this particular doctor in New York?" I think it was, and just said, "Like, if you we assume you don't know this person, but send it to somebody who you think could get it one step closer." And they found that it took about six degrees to get there, wow. um, which is how and later got applied to Kevin Bacon. Although, if you analyze the IMDb, Kevin Bacon isn't even the actor with the greatest degree of connectivity to everybody else. You know who is? Who? Rod Steiger. So he, Rod Steiger has like the lowest number of uh, degrees Degrees. of distance to everybody else in IMDb. Yeah, it pretty much like, 
it almost you would think there are some character actors with with lower degrees than you know some like major names because the, the be- yeah the benefit that Rod Steiger has is that he's, he had such a long career yeah uh, and and performed with so many A-list people that uh, he showed up in a ton of stuff yeah wow interesting that's 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 really interesting so I brought you on the show to talk about something the about which you do not know yet um and I I was looking at these questions before we started and dang it I think I made them too easy this week now I'm going to say that and I don't want you if you do get some of these wrong I don't want you to feel bad but um I was trying to make them difficult so I just looked at him and I'm like, I, I think you're going to get some of these. So for this first question, we're going to play for a joke. If you get it right, I have to tell a joke. If you get it wrong, you'll tell me one. And Matt's already told me he's got some ready to go. So I do. I here's do. your sure. question. Number one, this 1938 radio play caused panic because people thought it was real, though the scope of the panic is disputed. Was it A, Journey to the Center of the Earth, B, The Screaming Woman, or C, The War of the Worlds? Yeah, I, I I know the answer to this one, Jethro. Do you do you know the answer to this one? Oh, I yeah, I I read that uh, incredibly uh, magnificent Orson Welles biography by Simon Callow. So I, I I know this one. Yeah, this is uh, definitely War of the Worlds. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. You are. Although I do I oh. do want to hear Matt's joke uh, and your joke, Michael. So. <laughs> we can both tell our jokes. Okay. The answer, of course, is the War of the Worlds. Um, and the reason that this became so interesting to me. Uh, this week as I started looking into it is this part, this last part about the scope of the panic being disputed. Um, And it turns out like a lot of things like marijuana, it was the newspapers that really blew this out of proportion because they were threatened and they wanted people to start questioning the legitimacy of what they heard on the, on the radio. So while there was some panic, it wasn't the, you know, the whole like cities of people running into the streets screaming like right. we're sort of led to believe when you hear the lore about the War of the Worlds broadcast. I mean, True. it's 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 hard to believe that the media would sensationalize something uh, <laughs> in an unrealistic way. Can I'm you, just going to have to wrap my mind around that. That's, can you imagine? I compared it to sort of the today's like you get like the celebrity death hoaxes once a week on Twitter. You yeah, know? I haven't I guess, you know, you don't really see them quite as much as you used to. But uh, when Kobe Bryant died, I thought it was a death hoax because he was one that I feel like I would occasionally see Kobe Bryant death hoaxes. And uh, when he died, I think a lot of people were like, it was kind of the boy who cried wolf with that. They were like, nah, it's another hoax. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so here's, a, uh, here's a horrible, horrible joke. Why did the cross-eyed teacher lose her job? Because she couldn't control her pupils. Oh boy! <laughs> I told, I told you it was bad. That's a that's a real laffy taffy joke. Yeah, that's, these are all popsicle stick jokes. Good deal. I love it. I love it. What do you got for me, Matt? You got a joke? Uh, I do. I do actually. I have. I have sort of two. So okay. that, it's great that you set the scene with that because um, <laughs> it it lowers the bar for me, which I love. <laughs> right. Um, so mine is, uh, what did the two hydrogens say to the oxygen? What? What are you doing here? Oh my god. And you know what you know what my favorite thing about water is? What? I think it's pretty clear. Oh jeez. Wow. Uh <laughs> so you, the what are you doing here? Uh I can't help but picture the Californians sketch from SNL. Um Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? Uh, yep. <laughs> that's good. Very good. All right. So you're one for one. Let's move on. Question two. For this question, we are playing for a strange or surprising fact about ourselves. So if you get it wrong, you've each got to share something about yourself that might be that people might be shocked to know. And if you mm-hmm. get it right, I'll share one about myself. Mm. The man who adapted The War of the Worlds from H.G. Wells' original book to a radio play for CBS was Howard Koch. What ended Howard Koch's career writing screenplays and radio dramas? Was it A, he joined the army and was declared missing in action in Europe? B, he was blacklisted for being a supposed communist? Or C, he was fired for inciting panic with The War of the Worlds? Hmm. Um, well, this this one I do not know for sure the answer to. I don't know, but I suspect it's communism. Uh, oh. Because the Mercury Theater were the ones who did War of the Worlds, and they did uh, they did they had a big success on Broadway with The Cradle Will Rock, which later got made into a a, a film I think by Tim Robbins, like you know a decade or so ago. But they were all big. Uh, lefty socialist types and i would not at all be surprised given the uh the house on american activities commission and their uh keen interest in anybody who was uh socialist or communist uh it seems like that is a a heavy possibility i i love your reasoning jethro but i uh i, I don't think you're right um, because if the movie Clue taught me anything, it's that communism is always a red herring. So I'm going to have to go with A uh, about him being declared missing in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, for the correct answer, we now go to Howard Koch himself. I'm just kidding. He's long dead. Uh, he's <laughs> That would be awesome. Uh, no. Uh, so the answer is... B, he was blacklisted for being a supposed communist. Jethro is right. Matt, you are one for two. Jethro is two for O. Uh, This was, okay, so at 1943, at the request of Jack L. Warner of Warner Brothers, Koch wrote the screenplay for Mission to Moscow. Uh, The movie subsequently spawned controversy because of its positive portrayal of Stalin and the Soviet Union. After the war, Koch was fired by Warner um, because Koch was denounced as a communist. He was then criticized by the very committee mentioned by Jethro, the HUAC, for his outspoken leftist political views. Uh, He was blacklisted by 51. Um, So now he did finish his career writing, but I believe he had to move to Europe to do that. So. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, where where they probably couldn't find him at some point, right? So in a way, <laughs> we're both right. I don't think he joined the army, which was uh, necessary oh, for drat. A to be true. Well, at um, least not the U.S. Army. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, hey, oh. Maybe, maybe a different one. Comrade Koch. Uh, yes. So let's see. Matt, do you have uh, something surprising or strange that we would learn about you? Um, I, sure. I, uh, I, I am part of a group that is in the Guinness book of world records. What? What for? Yeah. For the longest musical March. Uh, I was involved in that in 1996. We, we broke the world record for the longest, uh, consecutive musical March. Okay. What, what you played an instrument? I did. Yes, I played the saxophone. Uh, I was in marching band all through high school. Was okay. a drum major, all that jazz. So, and when you say longest mine, musical march, like distance, yeah. that's what this yeah, is distance. To? So, a friend of mine uh, decided that he wanted to do this and kind of organize it as a fundraiser. Um, and 
we marched 50.2 miles. Oh my gosh. Uh, by marching around a shopping mall, like the outside of a shopping mall, 20 something times because it was like a two mile that is horrible uh, route yeah that's horrible uh when i was in the ohio state marching band we marched in a parade that was like four miles and Mm. it was awful that was a really long parade now granted we were doing you know a full like alternating between 180 and 120 beats per minute playing songs the whole way um and like full out you know but but it was awful and people complained before us older you know people that had been in the band before and after complain about the rose bowl parade which is i I believe five or six miles but that's well okay so i um since since uh, jethro got this right i owe you another uh a a fact about myself and i'll stick with a marching band one when i was in the ohio state band i believe it was my second year in the band i was actually suspended from a game uh oh, no. so this would have been a 1999 so. penn state home game i was suspended oh. because when the band shows up uh for an if it's a noon kick the band shows up at nine and the well maybe no band showed up at seven and the drums that's right the drum section would show up at five and we would be on the field practicing at 5 30 just the drums pr- practicing the pregame entrance and they had installed a new ramp. They had renovated the stadium, installed a new ramp onto the field with a new gate. And even though we had gone through the legwork of having them, you know, let them know that we needed to be on the field and open that gate, no one did. And so me and I think like two or three other people, we sort of broke the gate so that we could get into the field. And it caused a huge thing. It was a big deal. You know, and looking back, it's like so silly. But uh, they, you know, the the athletic department people were trying to say they're you know i was gonna be slammed with breaking and entering and all this stuff but oh, wow i needed the section to practice so um i was this is actually my third my fourth year because i was a squad leader of the section at that point so yeah that was my I mean, the, suspension the, the one thing that strains credulity about your story uh michael is the idea that percussionists would be early for anything <laughs> this is true uh, I've I've known too many drummers to know that they're going to show up two hours earlier than the rest of the band. You know, that was 20 years ago. And to this day, I am early for everything because of that band. Uh, You know, the the saying, and it's a saying with a lot of groups, but to be early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late. To be late is to be forgotten. And Hmm. uh, that, you know, if you were, and we literally, like, I, I remember being on trips when the, the band bus would leave and there were people chasing it because they were a few minutes late. You know, that was a that was a real rule. And to this day, like I said, I am still early for everything because of it. Wow. it Which is, drives me it crazy. Is a, when, it is when a fan- there, there's an old quote. I forget who said it, but uh, I know people who've made uh, made careers out of just being on time. Yeah, like it's it's <laughs> it's astounding to me that there are grown people who have so many aspects of their lives together who can't figure out that. Oh, yeah. Showing up on time is a, is a courtesy to the people you're meeting. And, and I would uh, love to be on time, but my curse is that I, I have to be early for everything and sometimes mm-hmm. unreasonably so, you know, so I always book the first flight into whatever city I'm getting into and then have mm-hmm. extra time, you know, because I'm like, oh, I'm going to miss it. You know, I, I have a little bit of anxiety about that. And yeah. if I'm driving, I get to the city too soon and which is sometimes cool because I get to go out and see local things, which is nice. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I would love to be just on time once. How well, how early do you arrive at the airport? At the airport? Uh, okay, so home airport is a different story than away airport. So sure. away airport, I generally shoot for two hours before the flight. Mm-hmm. Home airport, I will 
sometimes wake up two hours before the flight because I, I, you know, I know things are figured out. I know exactly what everything takes and there are less variables also having now it's different now. Everything's a little bit different now with flying. Um, There, there are many more variables now, but I just knew how long it takes. You know, it took 15 minutes to get from my house to the parking lot at the airport, uh, you know, 10 minutes to get through from there through security. It was, it it, was, it's all timed out really well. So, you know, all in all, I might be, sitting there with 45 minutes until I board, which is, which is a great amount of time to, you know, it's not too much. It gives me time to get a coffee, but yeah, when I'm in a weird city, I don't know, you know, like sometimes you get there and they don't have like a list for Southwest and then you got to wait in a long line that you weren't anticipating. And it's that one where there's like a sports team in front of you and it just takes forever <laughs> or, so. or a marching band or a marching band in front of you. And they're like, we're, we're making a Guinness world record for the longest airplane wait. And right, then you gotta right. And we and we were all here early because otherwise <laughs> we would have been in trouble. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, question three for this question, we're playing for an IOU for a coveted the Internet says it's true sticker. These are very hard to come by, extremely valuable and completely run out at this point. Uh, here's your question. In another instance of people mistaking a work of dramatic fiction for reality, a movie director, Rogero Diodato, I think is how you pronounce that. Rogero Diodato was once arrested for murder because authorities believed people in the film were actually being killed. Which one of these was the film? A. The Blair Witch Project, 1999. B. Cannibal Holocaust, 1980. Or C. Long Pigs, 2007. Ooh. Wow. Well, I, is, I'll throw yeah. Blair Witch right out. Because yeah, you know, I feel like that was that was a a big sensation, and people knew enough about that movie that they. And also, I don't remember anyone. I mean, I I saw it once in the theater because I got swept up in the. This was like the first made or not the first, but it was a big phenomenon in the in the '90s about like they made it themselves on a shoestring budget and yeah. it's the darling of Sundance. Uh, and, and well. Yeah, and the idea behind that was it was found footage, right? So if there was a director, you know, in the in that story, then yeah. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I agree with you. I, I would eliminate that as well. All right. So now we have Cannibal Holocaust. Was that? Was yeah, that Cannibal Holocaust or Cannibal Long Holocaust. Pigs. So Long Pig. I do know this that Long Pig. Hang on, just a second. I'm gonna. I'm losing the audio here for a second. Okay. Okay. Go ahead on that one again. So I do know this long pig is what cannibals in, I believe, Papua New Guinea refer to human meat as. Oh. So both films have a cannibal uh, flavor to them, if you'll pardon the uh, <laughs> mild wordplay. Uh, I, will, I will not pardon it. <laughs> well, you're going to get more of it. Uh, oh, good. I've got a meaty. In fact, Matt. You're looking rather delicious this evening. <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? Oh. Um, so they're both cannibal movies then. Yeah. If, if my guess about Long Pig is correct. But Cannibal Holocaust has a much more provocative title. It does. It does. In 1980, I feel like is... It feels like there's a greater chance of that type of thing happening in 1980 Because people were dumber in the past. Is that right? Yeah. Is that... What's up? Well, I, what, 1980 was like around the time of satanic panic mm. uh, in, in the States where people were freaking about 
freaking out about everything. So yeah. I think maybe there's a good chance. And also when you have the internet, it's so much easier to look up information about a movie. And and Long Pig was what, 2007? Yeah. 2007, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's that's during internet time. So yeah, I, I like Cannibal Holocaust 1980. Final answer. All right, Jethro, right, how about you, Matt? Yeah, I'm going to go with Long Pig. Okay, you're going with the yeah, Long Pig 2007? Just to be different. The answer... <laughs> Is Cannibal Holocaust 1980 oh, yeah! and Jethro three for three, Matt one for three. Uh, oh. So, yeah. So the charges were dropped once the guy proved that the actors had not been brutally murdered. However, this is interesting. He could not provide that same evidence for the animals that appeared in Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, he initially denied that any animals had been harmed. It turned out that many actually were. And as a result, the film was widely banned uh, due to obviously due to the cruelty to animals um so it's really it would became really hard to find that movie it became sort of an underground cult classic but yeah when it came out people thought that he was actually having people murdered on camera wow That's i remember craziness. that that was so like i don't know if you you guys ever saw faces of death yeah yeah it was like a whole series of things where allegedly like actual murders were there in the, the movie. Yeah, and and I, I have no idea of the veracity of that or not. Well, the, the, from what I understand, it was mixed because some of the, a, a lot of that footage was faked. You know, there was a very yeah. famous electrocution scene in a prison that was faked. There was a mm -hmm. very famous uh, magician sawing someone in half on accident, you know, with blood and everything. And that was fake. But I think mm -hmm. they actually did use, they sprinkled in like news footage of real things happening, um, you know, like. I, I I tend to think that there was maybe one of the hot, like the Ira Iranian hostage crisis was in a scene on, I don't know. With yeah. th those were the popular videos to rent from Blockbuster when I was a kid. Like when you get a oh, bunch yeah. of guys together, you get, oh, I got faces of death. You know, they had one in. And you watch we got that. my dad to rent it for us. <laughs> me and my two brothers. Yes. And from that moment on, I questioned my dad's judgment because I'm like, why the hell would you rent faces of death for your teenage children? He, because he asked for it. That's why. That's all yeah. you need. So, uh, Jethro, you get a sticker. Matt, I'm sorry. No, uh, that's, that's okay. This is this is just for those that don't listen to Drunkard's Walk. This is exactly how it goes every time. <laughs> Jethro has an idea, and he's like, "I think this is the right way to go." And I say, "No, it's definitely not." And then it absolutely is a hundred percent of the time. So, uh, I'm glad that we're just playing into the same brand here. Yeah. Well, well, don't think that I'm not gonna to snip a a, a bit of. Uh, Michael's dialogue from earlier when he said Jethro is right and just play that on a loop over in the over background. And over. <laughs> you can use it yeah as like an audio drop throughout different episodes. Like, uh, I'm gonna be like a drive time DJ with my <laughs> whammo button. <laughs> Jethro is right. Great. Great. That'll be great. <laughs> uh for this right, now next... the now the pressure's on. I gotta get the fourth question right. Otherwise... Yeah and I have a feeling you both will get this next one right because right. uh well I, I just I just have a feeling you guys know this. For this question, we're going to play for a plug on your podcast. So if you get it wrong, you've got to plug this show on your own show. Uh, if you get it right, I'm happy to, to plug your show on next week's uh, episode oh. of this show. So here it is. Orson Welles starred in Citizen Kane, which obviously many film aficionados call the greatest of all time. Very close to that time that he performed the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. The two were very close uh, chronologically. Was Citizen Kane before or after? The War of the Worlds. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so I feel like Citizen Kane is 
39. Does that sound right, Jethro? Do you, do you have any memory? Oh, of I'm not helping you on this one, Matt. You're on your oh, own. Oh, do you know? I I know. You see, you Jethro's do. confident in this I'm one. Very, I mean, to be fair, though, I'm confident even when I'm wrong. So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not really a signifier. That's, that's fair. But you you know which one came first already? Like, you don't even have to try to figure it out? You already know this? Correct. Oh, that's a shame. But all but right. I want to watch you struggle, so go ahead. So, <laughs> so you're, so you're going to make me answer first. Oh, absolutely. Uh, okay. So I guess I seem to think that War of the Worlds came first. Uh, I don't know why, because in my mind, that's 38 and, and Citizen Kane is 39, but I, I could have that all mixed up. So, uh, but I, I'm, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, I, I'm not sure which way you asked the question, but I'm going to say War of the Worlds came first, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane came second. That's, okay. That's my. Answer. All right. And Jethro? Uh, War of the Worlds definitely came first. Citizen Kane was uh, 1941, I believe. Oh. The answer is both of you are correct. 1941 was Citizen Kane. War of the Worlds was 1938. Uh, Citizen Kane really, even though, you know, Orson Welles had really become very popular on, uh, on radio just before War of the Worlds, like the year before, War of the Worlds made him like national celebrity. Citizen Kane, even more so. And it's kind of interesting to see some of the production on Citizen Kane very similar to some of the people that worked on War of the Worlds, um, including the composer for both was Bernard. Let me look this up because I looked it up earlier and uh, I don't want to get it wrong. 1938. Bernard, some of the people who are listening who know this are, are screaming the answer. Uh, the composer of the music is Bernard. Oh man. Now I can't find it. There, there are two 85 year old men screaming at their podcast. <laughs> right now. Bernard Herman. Bernard Herman. Yeah, you know, I was going to say it and then I was like, no, I'm going to be wrong. I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> Bernard Herman and his orchestra arrived at the studio where Wells had taken over production for, uh, the evening's program. <clears throat> And what they did was uh, they faked having like this ballroom jazz dance band playing. And so when when War of the Worlds begins, you can hear them playing La Comparsita. And that is interrupted with a, a science bulletin, a, a, a weather bulletin about the, the weather on Mars and how there are explosions happening on the planet Mars that, that are observable. So really interesting stuff. And then he did, of course, all of the score to um, Citizen Kane. And I had no idea exactly how involved Wells was in Citizen Kane. It, it was writer, director, producer, lead actor. I, it was it, he that was his movie. And yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the movie about the movie, the RKO 2207, 281. Yeah, that, what a great, what a great um, biography of Orson yeah. Welles that that became. So. It's, it's funny because if you ever go on a tour of the Hearst Castle yeah. in, uh, uh, in California, it's a beautiful place, uh, but they bear a tremendous grudge against Herman Mankiewicz, who is the screenwriter on Citizen Kane, because he used to like hang out at Hearst Castle. <laughs> and, and that's why he was able to get so many things right about William Randolph Hearst and why 
Citizen Gain got under her skin so much. I love uh, it. The, and, and like to this day, the tour guides at the Hearst Castle really uh, have a have a grudge against Herman Mankiewicz for that reason. There's a lot of poetry here when you talk about like it was the newspaper's grudge against Orson Welles that really made War of the Worlds gave it this mm-hmm. this panic. Uh, you know, it made it famous, but it gave it gave it this continued uh, story after story after story. And then that it was really those that same world, those magnates of of news, the newspaper industry that he was that he was punching up and making fun of on. Uh, yeah, I, wa- I wonder if uh, if uh, Rupert Murdoch feels the same way about succession. Yeah, uh, it, it would because... be really interesting to hear um, someone's thoughts on that. And I somewhere I have heard a um, a reaction. Gosh. I can't remember where I heard that. Uh, so somewhere it was like there was like a relative that was talking about how it's not able to be played in that house. <laughs> you know, Succession did a did an amazing job of of treating uh, Fox News with the the way it should be treated. And it, and it's crazy too because like these people these these moguls are multi billionaires. They're the wealthiest people on earth. They have lives of immense privilege and like. They can't take any criticism. They they can't see even a fictionalized version of themselves. It's it's banana pants. Yeah, it is. You know what what Wells said about the the newspaper <clears throat> the newspaper coverage. Um, so this was a quote from him uh, to Roger Hill. This he said this in 1983. Uh, he said it wasn't long after the initial shock that whatever public panic and outrage there was vanished, but the newspapers for days. The newspapers for days continued to feign fury. Mm-hmm. So he saw, you know, he knew that that's what was happening. That's the way he saw it was the newspapers just attacking it for being what it was, a new medium. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well and, right. and, and in so doing, they cemented its legend. Yeah. Like they, if, they did. if they hadn't done that, then we wouldn't be talking about it today. We'd be like a radio broadcast from 1938 no thanks not interesting but the, the like the newspapers made him they made the legend of war of the world wouldn't it be interesting yeah. if you could ask orson wells about that now you know i know i don't know there's a lot there's a lot of great audio of orson wells being a real jerk to they're, people they're definitely like, they, i mean there's there's a famous there's a famous sort of captured audio from a, like a mrs paul's fish stick yeah. commercial yeah it's yeah. great where the, he's the, just a total jerk to the guys in the booth the one the one for the the wine where he's drunk is so good there's oh, yeah. just take after take of him screwing up <laughs> the, or is it sham no it's champagne i think it's sparkling wine or something it's so yeah. good if you haven't seen that go look that up it no it's it's all it's all i mean it may be better than Citizen Kane as far as <laughs> I just read this. This is interesting. Uh, in 2002, Glenn Beck did a live recreation of the broadcast using the original, uh, Koch's original script, airs, aired it on Buzz XM, and uh, was sued. <laughs> yeah. except except glenn beck changed it so we were we were being uh illegal aliens we're landing right. Right. There's, a, there's a great um they did a, a version of it in the 90s i want to say may have even been the late 80s i think it was the early 90s then uh, many of the cast of star trek the next generation were in it gates mcfadden was in it and um 
uh, I think Brent Spiner and there's like, it's, it's a, I think it was on NPR. I'm uh, seeing it right now. That, yeah. NPR did one in 88 and it was uh, nominated for a Grammy best spoken word. I'm going to have to look that up and yeah. find it. That's, yeah. that's really cool. So you're, you're doing really well. Jethro's four for four. Jethro's doing very well. You're two for four and we've got one left. So uh, you can still beat a 500 record here, Matt. Oh, come on. This one is for all the marbles. If you get this wrong, I'm banning you both from the show, never to be asked on again. Here's oh, your no. question. And this uh, to be answered separately, other than your own podcast and other than this podcast, of course, what is currently your favorite podcast? Jethro, you want to answer that first? I, I'd, I'd be delighted to. So uh, I'm. I'm a big cognitive science fan. I, I have a, a degree in psychology, and I just love learning about the mind and how it works. And there is a podcast uh, called The Psychology Podcast by a guy, I believe, named Scott Barry Kaufman, um, who just interviews different psychologists and sort of talks to them about their thing. And, and he's got a really wide breadth of people that he talks to, so some like real hardcore data people and then some people who are more um, into what I would call the fringes of science. Sure. Like you talked to somebody recently about past lives, which is not really my bag, but it's at least interesting. But it's it's always a provocative conversation about you know the human brain and how it works and and how human brains work uh, with other human brains. And it's I, I really I really enjoyed. I, I learn something every time I listen, and it's always a provocative conversation. How about you, Matt? Uh, so I, I'm going to give you two answers because um, I have two favorites right now, depending on kind of my mood. Uh, if I'm in the mood to listen to, um, like if I'm just kind of working or, or you know, need something on in the background, uh, looking for some entertainment, uh, Smartless mm -hmm. is, is one of my faves right now with Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes and Will That's Arnett. That's really good. Um, where they bring on like a, one of them brings on a guest and then they just interview them and they, they have all these amazing celebrities and, um, you know, scientists and, uh, composers and race car drivers. And uh, anyway, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very fun to listen to. Um, and then the other one that I like to listen to a lot is science versus, yeah. uh, which is, um, where they take a topic that is usually, uh, in the news of some kind, and then they actually look into the science behind it. And, um, it's, it's, very well done and incredibly educational. Uh, so I love, I love that one. Cool. And also, Matt has a crush on the host, Wendy Zuckerman. Oh my gosh, yeah. absolutely, she's the greatest <laughs> voice in the world. I, since you guys are are both recommending science type podcasts, I recommend you listen to a friend of mine has a. If you're into social psychology, uh, it's called uh, the the Opinion Science Podcast by Andy Luttrell, Doctor Andy Luttrell. Um, and it's all about why people believe what they believe. He's got a guest every week talk or every episode talking about uh, why people believe different things. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And he's an entertaining guy um, nonetheless. So uh, I also love one called 20,000 Hertz, which is also science topics, but all based on audio. Oh, So there's some really yeah. interesting ones. Sometimes it's about music. Sometimes it's just about different tones and things like that. So I like that one a lot. Uh, they've, cool. they've done some that are about sounds that you hear in the movies, you know, like the, know. what's the one scream that, uh, the, you know, Wilhelm scream. Scream. the Wilhelm scream that's in like every, every movie where someone screams yeah. stuff like that. Uh, you know, they'll do an entire episode on things like that. So, cool. well, you both answered that right, which means Jethro, you went five for five and get this audio clip. You did it. Congratulations. Yay. You did it. And Matt, 
You went three for five, which is not worthy of the audio clip, but still a winner. It's yeah. better than 500. Better so, than 500. That's right. And I feel like a couple of those you tanked just because you wanted to make it interesting. Um, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some gamesmanship. Maybe it's just the showmanship. I don't know. It's some kind of ship. You, you are, you are the, you are the uh, John C. Riley to my Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights. Thank you. I appreciate. Okay. It. Okay. <laughs> Better than Step Brothers, where you're both idiots. That's mm. that's true. Uh, so you can listen to the Drunkards Walk podcast anywhere that you listen to podcasts. I highly recommend it. If you like this show, you will like that show. That's just how this works. Um, Jethro and Matt, I thank you very much for taking some time with me this evening. Thanks oh, so much thank for you. having us on. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks so much to CJ for the show topic and to Jethro and Matt from the Drunkard's Walk podcast for being my guests. Here's a space alien. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. To listen to episodes ad-free and a week early, support us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Kent. If you learned something just now that you didn't already know, go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That helps us a ton, because that's how the algorithm works. I don't know what an algorithm is, but just do it! See you next week for a brand new episode of The Internet Says It's True! The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make this show possible. Sean Brown, Joshua Endress, Dallas Ray, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Jim and Joanne Martin, Mitch and Andrew Joseph Kemplin, and the show's official emperor, KickTrack. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and all audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent.